Uh, this episode will jump around a little bit, as well, all my episodes do anyway. Uh, but I wanted to pursue that analogy for my own fun. Uh, it was a silly analogy, but I want to make something of it anyway. And that was the analogy where I compared um, the first fleet coming to Australia to the idea of a piece of England picking itself up, flying itself over here to Australia and landing itself here in Australia. Holeless, bolus, you know. And um, in my, you know, the way I desperately fish about for analogies and all that sort of thing. Well, no, I don't fish about. They just come to my head or they don't. Um, The one that popped into my head was the idea of a piece of England, you know, so I just picked a piece of England, Surrey. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I picked Surrey. Um, but, uh, and I imagined a thousand balloons being attached to Surrey, the county, you know, the county, using pieces of string, and then the whole of Surrey being lifted up by these thousand balloons. Let's make it a million balloons. Let's make it a billion balloons. Um, and um, it, Surrey breaks free from England and starts floating up in the sky, attached to all these helium balloons. Oh, I want to pursue that um, silly analogy because I think I can make something of it. And I think that's sort of what happened with the First Fleet and the English coming here to Australia. And, um, and this piece of England floated up into the sky like some sort of huge zeppelin, you know, um, except it's dirt you know, on the bottom end. It's like a floating piece of land. It's like one of the lands at the top of the faraway tree, you know, and it's and it floats, and uh, and r- the roots of all the English trees are sticking out of the bottom of it, and there's bits of dirt hanging off, and it's just floating through the sky like a floating land, you know, and that's a piece of England, um, and there's people, you know, and there's houses on top of it, and lots of. English trees and English flora and fauna. There's rabbits and um, foxes and um, creeks, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And um, English grasses and oak trees and birch trees and all that sort of thing. And even some English birds, you know. Um, And it's all floating in the sky. Look, it's silly, but it works for me. And... It, it now it looks like a um a, a huge spacecraft hovering you know the size of a a small country you know you get that in sci-fi movies sometimes you know a huge spacecraft um hovers above new york you know and all the people are looking up at it in wonder you know it'd be like that you know the first fleet was like that coming to Australia from England, and then it came, a huge shadow came over the land of Australia as this alien spaceship slowly made its way across the sky and it hovered above 
Sydney, you know, what was, what was to become Sydney, you know, but the land of the Indigenous people, um, I don't know what tribe is up there, um, um, and um, it hovered, this huge alien spacecraft hovered over Sydney Cove or whatever, you know, and, um, and this huge... Uh, and all the indigenous people, the, you know, the, the mobs up there were looking up in wonder at this alien uh, spacecraft up there with bits of dirt coming off it and they could see all the roots of the trees dangling underneath this, uh, the earth. It's a huge dish, yeah, um, the exact shape of Surrey. <laughs> up there in the sky and actually it probably wouldn't even make any sound you know it's sitting up there quietly it's because it's floating above and the indigenous people are all saying what's it doing is it going to is it going to come is it going to land is it going to descend and come down on top of us what's going on you know and then it starts to lower and come down towards this land of the indigenous people, and whole families start screaming and um, and start running um, away from it, you know, up towards the Blue Mountains and up towards Parramatta and you know anywhere, get away from Port Jackson or wherever it was. You know, the first fleet landed. You know, and um, and thousands of indigenous people screaming and running away. Um, metaphorically, you know, and uh, and then it comes down and it makes a huge shadow and it's getting closer and closer and then it just goes crunch and lands on top of the ancient land and we have a, we have a whole piece of England landing in um, this great southern land. Uh, now, and there's still there are English people on top of this this whole dish of land that has landed. A whole lot of people got killed underneath, underneath the land. The, a whole lot of indigenous people who didn't run fast enough were killed. Um, most of them were squashed by now. The analogy there is by disease, you know, because disease killed a lot of indigenous people. Um, but there were still people, you know, that weren't killed and they, you know, all the ones underneath, they're killed by disease, you know. So the English people on top of the land didn't quite mean to kill all those, uh, but they're dead anyway. And they were definitely um, careless, you know, in landing their spaceship on that piece of land. They didn't really care what was under it, you know, and all those Indigenous people got killed. So to that extent, they are to blame, um, but they had to get out of England anyway, you know, um, for various reasons, you know. Um, okay, so, um, and so they land this spacecraft and they kill a lot of indigenous people by disease by just landing on the piece of land. Okay, and, um, but there are indigenous people around the fridges and, and the thing has landed and the indigenous people are looking in this strange new land that has landed in their land and it's got oak trees, you know, sorts of trees they've never seen and grasses they've never seen and buildings they've never seen. Uh, the, the way these people build buildings is that they've never seen that either, 
Yeah. There's even horses and all sorts of things that, um, on top of this land that has just land that has just landed. Okay. And a few of the indigenous people tentatively sort of go onto this land and actually make friends and, you know, there's some sort of um, connection and all that sort of stuff and they end up living in and amongst. You know. So almost um, the indigenous people are coming onto English land. See, it's the opposite of the sort of immigrations that came later when Greeks and Italians and Vietnamese and Turkish Turks and whatever you want to poke a stick at, um, all sorts of different African people and all that sort of stuff come to Australia, um, they're tentatively coming into um, the Anglo-Celtic land, Australia, you know. Um, but back now, back in 1788, Indigenous people are tentatively coming onto English land, so to speak. Now, this this might sound very bad to your ears but it was a bit like that you know because the colony was set up and indigenous people were coming to live in and amongst and all that sort of stuff and um there were quite a few indigenous people living in the in the colony um, and making friends with even the english people and all that sort of stuff you know there's some famous examples of that I i forget what his name was but he went back to he went to england as well for a visit and came back um who was that indigenous guy? Uh, oh, Benelong, isn't it? Um, who, who, you know, John Howard's seat of Benelong. Um, so I think Benelong, you know, became quite attached to the English culture, you know, the early colonialists, you know. But then there were other indigenous people, you know, and there were skirmishes on the borders, you know, because, you know, some in, uh, indigenous person would see a sheep or something, you know, and a sheep would be wandering around and every law that person has ever known says that if there's a piece of meat walking around on four legs, you can kill it. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. You're not breaking any laws whatsoever. But um, but then a settler, a farmer, would shoot the Indigenous guy, you know. And then the, you know, the governor might um, uh, order that the farmer who shot the Indigenous guy um, should be tried, yeah, and he'd have a pretty good chance of getting off because there were, you know, there were, um, there were the colonialists' magistrates were inclined to be a little bit, a lot unfair in favour of, um, well, especially um, people being tried uh, for uh, being. Cr- bad to Indigenous people. Um, but then, you know, sometimes you know, the magistrate might order that the, Anglic- the Anglo person would be hung, and that happened a lot, uh, for killing an Indigenous person, you know. Look, it was a mess, and it was always going to be. But the point is, uh, I think that analogy, as silly as it was, it kind of illustrates that England, in all, for all intents, you know, England did kind of land itself here and they didn't come into the land of the indigenous people um you know retrospectively we feel that we can argue that case but at the time they landed a piece of england here and if indigenous people came into that land that was landed here you know and you've got to you know, be a little bit flexible with your mind to make this analogy work but i think it i think it does work 
in a legal sense or whatever. Um, but when Indigenous people came into the town, as especially as it began to grow, the Indigenous people were coming into a foreign land, even though the land of their ancestors was underneath that colony, you know, and that growing city called that was starting to be called Sydney and all that sort of stuff, you know. And then the funny thing is that land um, started to expand and take more Indigenous land and soon, very soon, um, the Indigenous people were getting pushed further and further away um, and if they did come onto that English land, they were trespassing. You know, to that extent, the British people who came here set up a new Britain and um, Indigenous people could trespass on it or they could come and live on it as long as they abided by um, the laws of that land, this foreign land that the Indigenous people were coming onto. And it would have been a freaky, freaky experience, of course, for the Indigenous people because they could, re you know, they could... They knew that their land was underneath that land. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I think that's the nature somewhat. And you can disagree by all means. But I think that's the nature of how England came to Australia. And then that colony sort of started to expand and get bigger and bigger and go up towards the Blue Mountains. And then it went over the Blue Mountains and then it spread right across the continent until Indigenous people somehow ended up foreigners in, on the continent that was their land. Yeah. So there's a tragedy in all of that, of course, you know, but it hints at the nature of the setting up of Australia, I think. And I don't know, do you think my analogy works? I don't know. I like it myself. And you don't have to, you know, you can just press fast forward or go to another podcast if you don't like it. Um, now, eventually, um, Australians started to, you know, there, there were um, famous court cases and all that sort of thing that, you know, declared that uh, the colony, which I claimed just now had spread right across the continent, every square inch, you know, there were pockets... Um, where um, even under our law we hadn't um, encroached upon. There were pockets of the continent where we hadn't spread, you know, and um, that colony, you know, it's, look, it, it spread across most of the continent and displaced Indigenous people off their land. So most of the land became English, you know, tragically, if you like, um, and continuous connection to the land was lost, you know, and more and more Indigenous people were finding their way into the cities and losing connection to their ancestral lands and all this sort of stuff. But there were pockets where um, it was decided, even by us, under our law, that we hadn't actually gone into. Yeah. And um, even under our law, Anglo-Celtic law, we decided eventually that... Um, Native title, as we called it, you know, um, still existed. The people, you know, um, Indigenous people hadn't left those spots, hadn't been pushed off those spots. We hadn't successfully genocided them off those spots, you know what I mean? And um, 
and you know native title claims started popping up and eventually we sort of came to feel that oh we haven't actually kind of spread to every corner every we haven't spread across every square inch of this country have we you know that initial little colony um you know that was like surrey you know almost like surrey um floating over here and then landing in sydney and then starting to spread you know, with all oak trees and English grasses and rabbits and foxes and all that sort of stuff right across the continent, hadn't spread to every square inch. And so we started marking out these little pieces of land, or rather large stretches of land actually, um, and saying, listen, those, the land, that land, native title still applies. But we've got a strange sort of marriage going on at the moment where our laws still apply, um, you know, and and it gets very legal there. Um, to a certain extent, you know, we don't know which way to go. We're into indigenous rights. You know, we don't. Indi- a little part of us, a lot of us, you know, we don't want civil rights for indigenous people, and indigenous people shouldn't want civil rights either. You know, this isn't an African African American scenario. You know, Martin Luther King demanding civil rights. You know, I have a dream. Uh, that isn't quite right for Indigenous people in Australia. In uh, Civil rights is almost um, giving in, you know, like if an Indigenous person um, accepts civil rights and the vote, for example, it's almost a kind of giving in. You know, you've almost come on to the English land and said, all right, we agree to be part of your civilization and... Um, you know, we accept membership into your civilization and voting rights and all that sort of stuff. You know, Indigenous rights is a little bit different than that and we're trying to work all that out now um, and build a new Australia almost that um, more properly recognises Indigenous rights and and tries to be a little bit of both cultures, you know. We're trying to build that, I don't know, but, you know, we might just... We might just get there just when neither the Anglo-Celts nor the Indigenous people matter, you know, and Chinese influences or whatever comes swamping in and renders us all slaves, so to speak, um, and um, cleaning, you know, um, and Indigenous people and we Anglo-Celts can all be side-by-side cleaning toilets for the Chinese, you know. It could get to that point where reconciliation doesn't even matter because we all end up slaves, you know. Which is a funny thing to say because what am I talking about when I'm talking about China coming and taking over Australia even, you know, Chinese influence? Because there's a lot of Chinese people here. Look, there's been Chinese people here since the gold rush and they're more Aussie than Aussie, (laughs) totally Aussie, you know. Um, you just got to, you can't pin the whole idea of Australian culture down. Yeah, and yet there is a, um, a China at the moment that we do feel presents a risk to us. What is that China compared to the Chinese people who've been living here in Australia since the days of the gold rush and are more Aussie than Aussie? You know, there's different Chinas as well. You, you just can't pin it down and why even bother trying? This is why my episodes jump about a bit because I'm not trying to come up with an answer. You know, I'm not a seeker seeking the truth and the answer, you know. I'm not on social media saying, I'll tell you what Australian culture is. It's this and it's that and it's that and it's this and it's reconciliation and it's this. Look, it's a mess. It's complicated, you know, it's a complicated mess and it's, a, it's everything and nothing at the same time. I'm not trying to pin it down.
I'm not a seeker of answers. Yeah. I'm not here to say Australian culture is one thing or another. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just suggesting it's this and then sometimes I'm suggesting it's that. You know, I want to keep it vague because it is vague and a work in progress and all that sort of thing. It's what it will end up being. You know, there'd be Chinese people in Australia who are very much part of Australian culture. I was at Faust, the opera, the other night. And it was uh, the the patron, the major patron of that opera, you know, the state opera in Australia, and um, a Chinese couple, yeah, but very much Melbourneites. In fact, much more prominent as Melbourneites than I am. Very much Australians and doing more for Melbourne and Australia than I ever will, those two people. It was a couple. I forget their names, but, you know, business people who... Um, dedicated to promoting the arts and you're talking western arts in melbourne you know but they were chinese so those sorts of chinese people are um are, are very much promoting australian culture in a much more powerful way than i ever will by making a stupid podcast you know these people are you know um are doing good things for Melbourne. They're Chinese. They happen to be Chinese, you know. Now, because I saw them in the front cover and they look Chinese and I racially profiled them as Chinese. You know why I did that? Because they had Chinese names and because um, they had Chinese faces and I put two and two together and said, they're Chinese, you know. Um, but they were very, very valuable Australians. All right. But the China that is exerting influence in Australia right now politically um, is a different China. It's that sort of China we're scared of. And even Chinese people here in Australia would be scared of, you know, in the same way that Hong Kong people are afraid of China right now and that's why Hong Kong is rioting, you know, because um, Hong Kong wants to be a bit more... They've they got a taste of what it's like being British. You know, Hong Kong, 99 years, British... And uh, and China has taken Hong Kong back, and Hong Kong people say, "Hey, we don't like this. We want to be China. We don't want to be Chinese. You know, politically, we want to be British. You know, the British. You know, it's a huge culture. The British. They're the worst culture in the world, except for all the other cultures. Uh, and yet they are terrible. And yet they are fantastic and wonderful and amazing." And they're horrendous, and they're brilliant, and they're ugly, and they're beautiful, and they're everything. <laughs> I got out of hand there. That one got away from me. You get what I'm saying. I'll leave that alone now, but I just did like my silly analogy in the end of a piece of England coming here to Australia. And, um, and they're not, you know, in that sense, they're not just another group of boat people. Yeah, with the same status as immigration status as, say, the Greeks and Italians later. And the Greeks and Italians haven't got the same immigration status as uh, more ref- recent refugees either. They've got a completely different status. They came under completely different conditions than, you know, more recent Syrians, for example, or African refugees or whatever. Um, uh, those people are coming here under humanitarian terms. Uh, and 
the Greeks and Italians were um, we recruited them here by and large. You know, after World War Two, we asked them to come. Yeah, so. Um, the CV of the Greeks and the Italians can't be used, you know, um, to uh, to claim that, you know, um, let's say, uh, uh, Middle Eastern and African um, refugees and immigrant, you know, asylum seekers and well, migrants. Um, you, you can't just say, oh well, the Greeks and the Italians were a huge success, um, so. Um, the more recent arrivals will be an equal success in the same way. You, know, you can't say, oh, the Greeks were a success, so why are you complaining about You know, because it's a completely different set of circumstances. Um, for there to be, for example, jobs for huge influxes of, um, and I'm talking, you know, the sorts of numbers of um, migrants that a lot of um, uh left-wing people would like to see come to Australia um, if if we did open the borders um, everyone would have a bad time and that includes the migrants you know because there's not the jobs here uh, we'd have to try and create jobs out of thin air which is not actually an e easy thing to do economically you know some people might say oh you you found jobs for the Greeks and the Italians, and that's what made that a success back in the 1950s. So find jobs for the Africans and the um, Middle Easterns, and that will be an equal success, you know. And they won't just come here and be living in ghettos and having a worse time than they were back in their own countries. Uh, we did, But the problem with that logic is that we didn't find the jobs for the Greeks and the Italians in a sort of humanitarian sense. The jobs were there. And we desperately needed Greeks and Italians or anybody to come at the time. And we had a white Australia racist policy, so we went for Greeks and Italians because, look, we couldn't get enough 10-pound poms and Scots and everything in. Uh, and my wife's, husband, my wife's um, uncle says, oh, you know, we wanted Northern Europeans, you know, the whiter the better. Um, and we couldn't find enough of those, so we sort of started coming down into South Europe from more of a slightly darker-skinned ones, you know. We couldn't get white, so we got slightly off-white. You know, that's the joke he makes, and I like it, you know, which is kind of what we did, you know. Um, yeah, which, you know, but the point is we didn't find jobs as some sort of, you know, we, we, we didn't say to ourselves, oh, the Greeks and the Italians are coming, so let's create jobs um, the jobs were here waiting for them. We had more work than we could do. Um, so we can't actually use that same sort of policy approach for, uh, let's say, a huge wave of immigrants as a certain progressive left-wing people would suggest we take in. Um, you know, we can't create jobs for such a large number of people, even the um, even the ones that are coming through normal channels, we can't find enough jobs for. Uh, with with our racist um, closed borders situation, even the ones that are coming in are struggling to with, to find enough work, and we can't create work for them because we didn't even create work for the Greeks and the Italians back then because the work was there. You know the demand wasn't artificially created by policy, the work was there. Um, 
it, the work created itself and then we tried to fill, you know, and then we recruited Greeks, Italians into it. Um, and that's the way it worked, you know. Um, and it doesn't... <laughs> you can't... You, know, you can't just create the jobs if they're not there. Economies in as such that um, jobs are there or they're not. Um, and I'll, I'm getting very tired now, so I'll finish off there and go back to whatever I was talking about before, all of that. Uh, but, you know, all in all, I just wanted to try and explore further this idea that um, England were an alien spacecraft landing in Australia and... Um, rendering, you know, and dropping in here a piece of England such that Indigenous person on their own continent were foreigners onto English land when they came into the colonies and then the cities and all that sort of stuff. You know, I think there's an element of that. Look, we're trying to create a new Australia eventually. But that, I'm just taking us back to 1788. I'm not talking about our 21st century sensibilities, you know, retrospectively deciding what was true back then. I'm saying what was true for the people of Australia back then, you know, and the Indigenous people coming into the English colonies were kind of foreigners coming in, uh, tentatively trying to navigate their way um, through English streets and English laws and English customs, and be, they were foreigners in their own lands, and it's a tragedy. But I'm just I'm just describing Australian culture as it was, not what your you know, not one, not what one might retrospectively um, say now in the 21st century and say, you know, you can say, ah, oh, no, the English people were foreigners, you know, on Indigenous land back then. Well, they are now, according to our thinking these days, but back then they weren't. They were on their own land. The English people back then were on their own land. They just were, as far as I can tell. Back then they were, in that time, you know. You're being chauvinistic if you're saying they weren't when they were. Back then, they owned that land. It's a tragedy, but they did. I think that's true. just in a senator, a former senator in our parliament, uh, the upper house, uh, has been killed in a car crash in the last day or so, or last day or day and a half. Uh, so somewhere out there, you know, there's a tragedy uh, for a family. Uh, and if I knew them, I'd say condolences, but I don't. So, uh, but um, now... Um, Seven Chen. I feel I remember him, um, but I don't pay enough attention to politics. Uh, he's and he was born in China. Uh, so some things about this Seven Chen uh, will be relevant to this mini series on Australian culture.
And uh, I'll just read his Wikipedia page. You know, suddenly I'm reading a couple of Wikipedia pages, you know, for this little mini-series. I've never read things before in this podcast, really. Okay, I usually just go off the top of my head. Right, and here it goes, Seven Chen. Uh, Seven Chen, yeah, if I'm saying his name wrong, uh, then uh, I'm saying his name wrong. Okay, and in pinyin, it's Chen Zibin or something like that. And in Chinese, I can't read it. Uh, 10th of March, 1940 to 25th of November, 2019. Oh, there you go, 25th of November. What's the date today? Uh, 25th. Oh, no, we're in December. All right, he's, he died about a week ago or so. Okay. Um, he was in office as a, a senator for Victoria. Uh, it's 1st of July 1999 to 30th of June 2005. He was born in Chongqing, in China. And he's died in South Australia. And he was with the Liberal Party of Australia, which is, uh, for you Americans, that's our conservative-leaning party, our right-wing party, the Liberal Party. Uh, that would not compute with you Americans, because, you know, I think you're a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Uh, Chen was born in Chongqing, wartime capital of China. Oh, is it? Sorry, Chongqing. See, I'm shocking on some things. Chongqing. What was that before? Uh, what do we used to? Did Chongqing have a different name? I just, I just quickly went into the Wikipedia site for Chongqing. And um, I should know more than I do know, but I just don't. <laughs> right, go back. I don't even know where Chongqing is, actually. Wartime capital of China during the Second Sino-Japanese War. More commonly known amongst Chinese as the War of Resistance. Okay, so the Japanese would have been the aggressors there. Um his father was then a junior diplomat with the Chinese government and was posted overseas when Chen was two years old. Chen followed his father to various postings and never returned to China to live, except for two years, 1954 to 1956, in Taiwan, where the nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek had fled after losing the mainland in the Chinese Civil War. His father continued to represent the Republic of China government until 1975, when he retired to live with Chen in Australia. In 1958, Chen gained a student visa to Australia to study. At that time, the only way for Asians to enter Australia due to the white Australia policy. Eventually, he obtained a master's degree in town planning at Sydney University. From 1966, so it looks like the white Australia policy, you know, by this point in time, would make it hard for someone to come here. But you could still, uh, be, you, you could still get here, <laughs> and and go to the top by the look of it, because he, he became a senator. Okay, from 19, even if you were Chinese, you know, uh, from 1966, Chen worked as a New South Wales government town planner in Sydney. Harold Holt. Succeeded Robert Menzies as Prime Minister in 1965, 
and effectively ended the white Australia policy by altering the immigration law to allow Asian migration. After weighing up his choices, Chen decided to remain in Australia and gained citizenship in 1971. Okay then, next last bit. Chen was interested in Australia history. Now we would say Australian history. Yeah, that's sort of more English, is it? England history? I don't know. Um, Chen was interested interested in Australian history. And, oh, I'll just change the wording there. And had come to view, come to the view that one of the factors that brought about the anti-Chinese attitude in Australia that culminated in the White Australia policy was the often self-imposed isolation of the early Chinese community. All right, so Chen sort of said, if you had have assimilated a bit more, yeah, he's saying to earlier versions of Chinese people coming here during the gold rush and all that sort of stuff, if you had assimilated more, ah, look, you know, um, I'd be more complex and all that. But it's interesting that he mentions too here, or this uh, this Wikipedia article, which you can't trust because you don't know who wrote it. Maybe Chen wrote it, you know. Um, he came to the view that one of the factors that brought about the Chinese attitude in Australia that culminated in the White Australia policy. So, you know, this this uh, article um, draws a, a direct link between uh, us being anti-Chinese per se in the 1800s, causing the White Australia policy. Um, so that's interesting enough, and I talk about that a little bit more in other parts of this mini-series, you know. Uh, but, you know, the White Australia policy has been um, fascinating me lately, as I think more and more about it. Um, and, yeah, it became something in our imagination a lot later in our time that was um, something different than what it was at the time it was created, you know. These days, White Australia policy... Um, you know, because we've had so much, um, with social media and everything, we're having so much contact with um, American, US sensibilities, that the average person, I should go and interview 10 young people at random and say, what do you think the Australia, White Australia policy was all about? You know, maybe one of them has studied it and will know. Um, and, and they would probably align it to the kind of racism that the US has that white versus black thing over there you know whereas um you know and i, I discussed this a lot more in this episode uh, our version of racism uh if, if, if you want to call it that is and it was more than just racism it was actually um living conditions and all that sort of stuff we were worried about our living conditions being changed by immigrants coming from for example especially china you know um and I, I discussed that further on, and that's very different than a the um, the white U.S. policies. What is it, Jim Crow, and all this business? You know, um, that related to the relations between white and black people in America, who were already there living together. You know, very different. Ours was much more about. Um, we have an Australia and it looks like this and we don't want people f who, are, who don't live like us coming in because that will change the way we're living. 
It's a very different set of circumstances. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it's very different. And I bet a lot of people, when they hear white Australia policy, they sort of think no different, you know, to the to the white-black fiasco that goes on in the US, you know. But it's a very different thing. I really do think so. In fact, the Americans pretty much said open their borders, didn't they, a long time ago? Did they, you know? Bring me your poor huddled masses and everything. Was that a white, white America policy in effect? Maybe it was. I don't know. But the point is that the white-black problem in America is um, one of a fraught relationship between slave owners and slaves in, in, a, in, a, in a large way, whereas we don't have that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, the, de- the debate about whether we should have a... European Australian policy, yeah, which ended up being called a white Australia policy, um, was more about, right, we have an Australian here, it's nothing to do with Africans and it's nothing to do with all that. Look, yes, we don't want them coming either, you know. We don't want their living conditions either. Um, but the point is, and we are racist, but it's, it was really protecting borders. And to a certain extent, it seems to me that the debate leading up to the white Australia policy is not that different to the debate we're having now um, because we're still talking the same way. And even about Chinese influence, you know, and, and closing the borders because we don't want people flooding here and changing our way of life and changing our culture, you know, which because culture is way of life. Okay, but I just wanted to read that thing um, because, Chen, you know, uh, Chen, the ex-senator, and it's very sad, he's been killed in the last week or so, um, Chen was, you know, very much an Australian. Um, and, um, and, you know, when I say, oh, we don't, you know, we're frightened of Chinese influence coming here. We're not frightened of people like Chen coming here. He came here and he became an Australian and a much more valuable Australian than I, than I ever have been and ever will be. Uh, so, yeah, keep it loose. You know, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to nail anything down. You know, this is not social media. You know, I don't want you saying after you've listened to my podcast, um, he's nailed that, you know. You know I'd be horrified if you said that because I, I don't want to nail anything. Of course, you're never going to say that because I never do nail anything. <laughs>